This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. Thank you for your patience while we had a little bit of a technical glitch. What do we do here on the show? Well, it's all about expediting the growth of your career and your business. What do we do? We bring in the best and brightest, people that we know we can look up to, we can trust, taking advice from them, learning from their journeys and experiences. Today is no different. Mr. Pat Pillay, uh, you are the CEO of LifeCo Unlimited. Thank you for joining us in studio. We have a little bit of history that we'll we'll let some the listeners in on in just a moment, but welcome to the studio. Thank you. Do you want to, and we do this every week with our guests, introduce yourself. And if you miss anything out, any of the big uh, important things, the, the bragging stuff, which often people do, I'll fill in some of the gaps. Do you want to just introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Pat Pillay. Uh, grew up in the Cape Flats. Um, ended up um, getting a teaching degree and then not teaching for very long and being distracted by a whole lot else in life. And when you say distracted, are you talking about the wonderful career that you had in media as a news anchor? That's where a lot of people will recognize when they see the, the cover photo for this podcast. That's what they're going to see, uh, a face that they recognize. How did that come about? So much. I think I was an intentional teacher and an accidental everything else. And all of those were happy accidents. Um, and it was myself and Vuyu Mbuli, Tracy Going, who were youngsters, um, and we got called into an SABC channel called National Network Television that first ran in the early 90s, Teleschool. Mm. Remember that? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, the, the democratic project in South Africa was, was fresh and mm. people were excited about it. And um, the elections hadn't even happened yet. And there was a sense that it's, this channel needed some fresh faces. Mm. And I was a teacher, Vuyo was a teacher. And so we were brought in and accidentally found ourselves trying to teach through the medium and then ended up in broadcasting. By the way, just as a, an aside, my favorite people in the world are teachers, especially in this country. But why? Because you often get into it for really, really good altruistic reasons, this desire to impart knowledge and to empower. But then you're faced with a seems to be an industry um, phenomenon which is low pay and difficult hours and difficult bosses and difficult politics what was your experience of that I qualified in the 80s and we know what the education system was in the 80s mm. and even though you qualified as a teacher you had to fit into your box and go and teach children in the box mm. allocated and I wasn't happy with it and many of my peers weren't happy with it and I found myself um, restless and unhappy. I loved working with the children. And I'm an English school teacher and I'm qualified to teach high school. But very quickly realized the system is too restrictive. And then left um, after a little while and then started my own business. Okay. And from that point on, I think I found other ways to make my teaching passion take root and that is another series of accidents. Is LifeCo then a, a, an unfolding of that? I mean, are many of the things which I've, I've personally been able to experience that occur in the LifeCo environment, is, is that a natural part of you yourself? 
Uh, is it so a lot of a lot of it's by design some of it will maybe be accident uh, can you just talk us through the origin of perhaps you but lifeco as well we're going to see some parallels coming out here i think because i also understand that lifeco was started struggled on for a, a year or so then stopped this was about 28 years ago if i correct me That's if i'm right. wrong and then only a decade later was revived is that correct mm. so when i decided i'm leaving teaching um it was in the stage of actually leaving um, the, or the decision to leave that the first thoughts around life co were born mm. and it is under apartheid and it is uh, about liberating minds and it's about finding a way to invest in young people what we now call entrepreneurial confidence mm. and if we were going to realize the south africa that we were all talking about then and still talk about it had to be premised on a deeply held sense of entrepreneurial self-esteem. Mm. And so there was this attempt and I was 23 years old at the time and it ran for a year and a bit and failed. Mm. And it failed because I had passion for the teaching, I had passion for what I thought was an entrepreneurial uh, process, but I knew nothing about running a business. Mm. And it died. Well, I mean, isn't that the story of so many young people today? That there is this passion and there's this desire, but really there's a business acumen and understanding that is not obvious. People often mm. think it's obvious. Some people make it very simplistic by saying it's just a product, it's just a service that solves a problem, but that's it's so much more than that. In fact, some of the bureaucracy and things of a growing business can often kill businesses. Maybe that's part of your experience. You're right, Gareth. You're so right, and you said it better than I could. There's another language mm. I've later on realized. I say it now as if I knew it then, but damn, I didn't. But I think that I now realize that I needed three languages. I was a, a literature teacher, a teacher of language, mm. but I didn't have the important languages for my business and a way to manifest the passion I had. And those three languages were... The, the the language of understanding enterprise, mm. the language of understanding capital, and then the language of understanding my product, service, and in this world, impact. Mm. Mm. And the language of running an enterprise may be very common. There's some things that are similar, whether we're running a hot dog stand or you're running Cliff Central, okay? And there's some things that are different. Then that language of understanding capital um, is something that's tougher to get but vital. I don't think any entrepreneur who has a passion to do something in the world, produce something, can do so without understanding the language of capital. And I'm not talking about the deep financial analysis that mm. we hire experts to take care of. And then that last one, the language of impact. What, what am I actually doing in the world? What difference am I actually making with my product or service? I knew none of that. I simply had a curriculum. I was doomed to fail. Self-awareness is a very big part of the uh, of any kind of success in probably any walk of life, any part of life, any business. At what point did you begin to see this, for want of a better phrase, maybe deficiency mm. rearing mm. its head? How did how did you know enterprise, capital, and then impact? That I realized probably in the way I'm articulating it now as these three languages, I probably only got to know that about 10 years ago. Interesting. 
And what am I? 53, 54 in a couple of months. Mm. So just into my 40s, I start getting this when I encounter another precipice of failure, right? And I learned this from a few people who take me through. Why the hell did you almost fail this time? Well, so in my 20s, I realized when I sat with those parents and said, I'm sorry we have to close down. And the first classes were run in a nightclub. And the only venue I could get was a nightclub during the day. And you don't want to see what a nightclub (laughs) in the 80s looked like with the lights turned on. Mm. But I think the biggest lesson from that was I didn't know. And then went off and, and studied further at Fitz Business School and did whatever I could in the corporate finance space and, and whatever I could lay my hands on while I was working. And then started this enterprise um, again 10 years later. But in between the failure of the first version of LifeGo and the start again 10 years later, which is in 97, I was running, and that is a social enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. I was running my private businesses. So to more directly answer your question, I think I started to gain an understanding of what I didn't know and begin to, I suppose, paint a canvas of how I could fill in the blanks Mm. when I developed and sold my first business at 28, and that was a private enterprise. Well, developing and selling a business, I mean, that's a success story in and of itself, which uh, is worth exploring. Our story has moved very quickly. I want us Mm. to pull back and let's re-engage you as a 23-year-old. And then you hit a a point where you have this passion and you're expressing it in a particular kind of way. There are clear... Um, languages or understanding that you don't have confidences that you lack, but you st- you still have this thing within you. At what point do you, as a 23-year-old, realize oh, this is going to fail? Mm. So there's the euphoria of the start. Will somebody respond to this ad that I took in a community paper? And from sitting in the telephone line, writing the ad, and then going to see the editor, and it really was a, you know, a leftist community paper mm. and paid for the ad over six months I think it was a few rand a month but will anybody call and then someone does and you find yourself talking through what you've rehearsed because you've got to sell this thing you've got to market it you've got mm. to convince someone that they should come to you so there's that euphoric stage the phone's ringing mm. and we're getting together on this Saturday and then people arrive and you set out some tea and coffee and then you sit down and you talk them through this. You're 23, wet behind the ears, court brook like you cannot believe. Mm. And yet people are sitting there listening. And you've got skeptics and cynics and believers in the room. Mm-hmm. And the early adopters are asking the kinds of questions you want. The cynic is asking the kinds of questions you don't want to hear and you haven't got an answer to. And the skeptic is asking questions, wanting to be convinced. And in that moment, I discover something about myself. I did not want to hear anything that wasn't in line with the way I saw it. That's interesting. And it's a, it's a monumental failure at the outset. But anyway, of that first meeting, a few sign up, many more walk away. And I know that night, and we all know the truth about ourselves, when we lay our head in a pillow and there's no one else around, I knew I just didn't play it right. I mm. wasn't ready. Mm. Anyway, there was another round and you get a bit better, right? Then there's that next phase where people actually arrive, they bring their kids along, and there's this passion because we're going to grow entrepreneurs. And it's in the thinking. It's not in the skills, it's in the thinking. The skills will come. 
and I go through the next uh, few, I suppose, loops of euphoria. It's working. They're there. They're enjoying it. But hold on. I just saw uh, what our listeners won't hear, and there was an upward cycle to, yeah, 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 to your yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. So there was an upward cycle here. There, there was, that what, it was sort of heading in the right direction. Okay, but, okay. But, but it's a... It's sort of an undulating set of hills. You know, you go up and then you hit a valley and you... But then what I learned then is as this thing is unfolding and we're running these classes, that I start to become dogmatic about my philosophy. Okay, interesting. And the students start challenging you, sometimes in silence, sometimes in their openly in their questions, and sometimes just in their confusion. And I realized the next lesson, I had a personal philosophy to start this enterprise. But once you start it, it takes on a life of its own and I needed to become a student. Mm. Now that said, it sounds you know all noble and all the rest of it. I'm sure. an entrepreneur. I put everything I had on the line. I'm trying to make this happen. And I hit the next big blocks. And that's probably six months after. And it's around the fact that my personal philosophy does, does not a curriculum make. Mm. It needed to be built and really listened, listened to my students, listened to... And I started going around and talking to entrepreneurs. And the only ones I could find in this community were shopkeepers and someone who was selling a second-hand car lot. And I didn't have access to the guys you talk to. And that was a lovely learning. And it was confusing. I'm a teacher. you know. Then the last one happened when I started to run out of money. Okay. And that's when you start realizing, oh, hell, if I anticipate this and some fees were paid quarterly and so on and so on. I'm not going to make it. Mm. And that's when you start seeing the writing on the wall. Mm. And the writing's in red. And I, I anticipated I needed to find another way. Now, I either had to sell and put people into the classes later. That would mess the system. Or I had to start another class and hire somebody and then the costs increase. You see the problem. And eventually, long story short, the following year sat down and I had to apologize to the parents and the students and say... I'm sorry, I didn't think it through carefully enough. What did that feel like? God damn, Gareth. Yeah. It is, it's one thing to do something that is just designed to see a return. Hot dog stand. If it doesn't work, you close up and people will buy their meal somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. It's another to take your heart, put it right in front of other people who too are bringing their children to you and they too are extending their heart and trust and they're prepared to pay five rand a week or whatever. The, I can't remember the fee exactly. But what we ended up with was a small community of people who believed in children and suddenly your passion doesn't follow through on the promises not delivered because I didn't do the numbers well mm. enough. I felt like a dog. I felt terrible. I cried. You know, you go back that night and you're alone and you feel more lonely than ever. It was horribly painful. And I tried to talk to my mum about this and tried to talk to my grandfather about it. And they did the normal placating of their child. Sure. They didn't understand. There's um, an interesting saying I heard. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. Yeah. So how could yeah. they understand? Yeah. So that is understandable, certainly from their side. Mm. What did you take from that experience? I mean, so even now, I'm sure you're, you are hearing something and taking something different from that experience. Mm. What was the immediate um, effect on you just following that, that? The immediate response, contrary to what superhero entrepreneurs say, 
I was terrified. Mm. I said, I'm never doing it again. I can't. I'm going to go out, start a private business where I know we agree on a price. And if we do, we trade. And if we don't, we walk away. Mm. I'm not no heart in this business. I'm mm. going to make money. That's what I did. And you I did, just uh, ran away from it. And you said, you said that was then at 28 you sold the business that yeah. you had then that, that followed that. At what point in all of this is the, the TV career beginning to come in? Mm, I, I, okay, so I, I started that business, uh, sold it at around 28, but I was starting to exit. And I ended up in Johannesburg because everybody went to Johannesburg then. It's Igoli, you know, the place of gold, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I accidentally end up talking to a few people here who are very generous with their connections and their support. And I'd sold, and I, my passion for teaching never left. And then the chance came to still be connected to education, but to do so in broadcasting on what was National Network Television then, mm. which eventually became SABC3. Um, it was wonderful because you could reach, and, the, and then I think the viewership was 500,000 500, a month, oh, something a like that. And to go from that, from my experience of working with, you know, 50, 60 kids to the possibility of being able to influence the thinking and the mindset of 500,000, and I didn't know how many were kids, was amazing for me. I knew nothing about broadcasting. Do you remember, do you recall your that first, the moment they, mm. they counted you down five and then suddenly the fingers started going because they're no longer mm. speaking and then they hand over to you? What was that like? There was silence. The countdown came and I don't know what happened. My brain left me. My, there was, and it, they did it again. Counted me down again. It was silence. And eventually there was frantic, will somebody speak here, please? It just was, my first broadcast was dead silence. Well, um, maybe kind of reminiscent um, as you were hearing us having technical difficulties here. Mm. But uh, so you felt like your, your brain had left you. Okay. Mm. What is, how do you recover from that? Oh, man, I, I, I couldn't sleep uh, that night. You Finally, you do it. You know, mm. finally something kicks in and, and I'd written the script. I simply needed to somewhere inside of me deliver what I believed in. That's it. It was terribly delivered. It was mumbled and rushed. It was, I was sweating. Uh, uh, terrible. I was disastrous. And then very quickly the producers sort of came alongside and calmed me down and said, all right, take a breath. This is easy. At that time, Vuyo Mbuli was also involved in um, NNTV. And um, he would sit, I'd do my stint and he might come after or mm. whichever way around. And Vuyo would be sitting down practicing and refining and mm. working on his vowels and trying to get things out. His preparation was immaculate. Mm. He was better at it. And I thought I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared enough. I mm. prepared the content. I didn't prepare me. And anyway, I would watch him and listen. Um, Tracy Going was very good. Another one who just somehow, even though she, we were all roughly the same age, just held it together beautifully. So you could look around and see young people with you who had different strategies and quickly learn. Very supportive bunch, you know. And then it got a bit better. But what I'm hearing as well come out, and this is another lesson that can serve 
entrepreneurs and and those in their career so well which is there are people around you reach out to them or allow them to come to you and and just be vulnerable be uh, allow for that wise word or the the possible correction were you open to it at that time well i think you probably must have been open to it at that time let me ask it the, the question differently are you able to remember or recall a moment where perhaps there was a confidence or an maybe better called arrogance that that led mm. you to reject someone coming to you and saying try this and do you remember an experience like that and and something that came out of it or didn't oh no it did and this happened in remember i said it um the first version of life co failed and then ran the private company mm. sold it in that period that i ran the private company some of them were my mates from varsity and at some stage one of them said to me what happened to our friend cuz oh, yeah. i turned into an arrogant i put up the money i own 100% of this i take all the risk you will what the hell stop the excuses you will execute we planned this thing deliver it execute it i was everything you know these bad american movies or maybe mm. good american movies sometimes mm. that indicate that asshole boss yeah that was me yeah because i'd failed at at lifeco I felt terrible about it. I was going to overcorrect now. Yeah, I was going to make this say, work. So your response was was to go to swing right to uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not failing again, right? Mm. So in your 20s, especially when you grow up in the Cape Flats with nothing with with a family of waiters and you the story's told is this is what we had in district 6 and now we've got nothing. Mm. And I'm the one I'm the first to go to varsity from the Cape Town family. There's this pressure to succeed. I qualify as a teacher, I don't teach. I try something, it fails. Mm. Now I'm in another business and there's this weight that I feel and I turn into the asshole boss. Mm. Very definitely. You will, you will execute and so on. And okay, fine, sell the business, but I lost some friends. Actually, I could have had the same result and still had my friends. What you've described is you've described a set of circumstances that pushed you in a particular kind of direction that I don't know can you can you definitely say you could have had that same result knowing what you I mean knowing what you know now no, you, what you, I know now you can reflect and you can say then, I possibly could have but but the, you, you needed that you you, you know when when you when you when you 20 something had a failure so so young and you want to make something work I got a son to feed I got a family to take care of and what often happens in our country is we we know the black tax right mm. that you work and then eventually you send money back home for yep. those who just don't have there's all that pressure and you end up i suppose overcorrecting what i now what i said just now i say recently in my 30s i thought i was absolutely right it was done right i sure. had to make this business work mm. if i didn't do that in that period or that quarter the result would have been terrible we would have business would have died so i justified it all by the fact that we were able to exit but now i think we could have had an exit it would have been more graceful and i would have had my friends mm. i then i didn't know how gareth i, I really didn't it's, it's interesting how we are able to look back and even possibly forgive ourselves for those moments because we don't we don't know how Uh, and mm. and there's something that I was taught a long time ago and it's helped me greatly in in my life and that is that confidence is trust in processes that work anything else is arrogance mm. 
And so this mm. idea of trusting processes that work really um, has helped me. Uh, and so that's quite cool. Can you say that again? Confidence mm. is trust in processes that work. Mm. And an extension of that is anything else is arrogance. Hmm. As we sit here together, I'm, I'm learning processes and, and gleaning that from you in a certain kind of way. I'm, I'm very interested to know why after 15 years um, in front of the camera, you, you have all the confidence that you need to continue to, to probably be successful and more. You decided that it was time to now move on. This is, this is the calling, your, your impact, something calling you, you back out into the world. Or what, what, what happened during that period? Hmm. So I was at E! News for 10 years. When I first joined, it was Deborah Patter, Patrick Conroy, Joe Cholwe, mm. who first interviewed me. And the conversation then was something along the lines of, thank you for the invitation to join the team, but I am already involved with LifeCo. In fact, I left Prime Media. Now, at that stage, working for a listed company, it was listed then. And I left that so I could focus more on LifeCo. So if you can accept that, that I will be at LifeCo and here, then we can do it. Mm. I decided, but in my 40s and the rest of my life, I was going to go back to being a teacher. But this time, I'm an entrepreneurial teacher. I wanted mm. to build the institution that could educate and grow. Mm. I wasn't necessarily the one who had to do the teaching. Mistake in my first attempt, right? Deborah accepted that. Great. And I continued to do that work and much of the week in daylight hours, that was a nighttime gig, right? Much of the the time in daylight hours I was able to give to LifeCo. So I'd, I'd stepped away from the private sector, I'm using inverted commas now, mm. I stepped away from the private sector late 30s to focus on this work because the teacher in me is me. Everything else has been a great gig. You know, I love it. I'm blessed to have had it. Um, and whatever I've done, I've given my heart and soul to. And it's important. Um, I'm a professional who cares about making sure that whatever is produced is of world-class standard as best as I can possibly uh, deliver that. It's. I learned later on it's a team that makes these things happen. Mm-hmm. Right now you're sitting there but there's a team behind you that makes this stuff happen right, yep, and sustain yep. it. And that was an amazing 10 years with E! News. And, uh, you know, uh, it grew. Um, amazing people that I worked with. But my primary was LifeGo. And they knew that. Do you, do you know what's so remarkable about your story is that there was a very early understanding of what you felt was your calling. Let's call, and you can call it a calling. There's a number of other words we can say, a passion. But how it kept on calling to you. But what's interesting here is, and, and I'm interested to find out exactly how this, how you've been able to subdue perhaps part of the teacher and be the business owner and the business developer, but still return to that teaching spirit that, that you have within you. Help me to understand how you've been able to do that specifically. So I, I became a different kind of teacher. Um, there was a second launch of LifeCo now in 97. So what's that make us 20 and a bit years old? And I understood that the second iteration needed to have a co-founder. And that's when Carmen Dorito joins. Okay. 
My first attempt was a failure because Carmen wasn't there. Mm. This time she was there. She too is a teacher. And we sat back, and this was in the south of Joburg. It was Lanasia, Eldorado Park, Soweto. That's where we were operating. And we sat together and said, and she comes from an entrepreneurial family. Okay. And said, okay, we love teaching, but we're going to build a business so that if anything happens to us, this mission continues. Mm. And there were a few principles. The one was give value first. It's still there today. And give value first, I think, is an entrepreneurial paradigm. That was clear. We also knew we wanted to build a balance sheet. But we registered a not-for-profit. Interesting. First problem was, how does a not-for-profit build a balance sheet? Well, we said, if we're going to grow entrepreneurs, we damn well better be entrepreneurs ourselves. So we decided to not take any grants. Mm. And we were going to trade for change, not beg for small change. That was the phrase we used. And today, people get it. Then it was bizarre. So people now know that National Geographic started as a not-for-profit, but that brand is enormous in the world, right? Mm. It's possible. So we looked for examples where there were social enterprises that traded for change. Now, the phrase social enterprise, didn't I didn't even know it then. And I suppose what we tried to do was to become the entrepreneurs we were wanting to build in our students. And so we did. We traded. Um, and long story short, the organization needed a teacher in me and in Carmen that worked with teams that went on to do what they now do. And sure, we were in the class working with them. In the early days, you you, know, you opened up at 5 a.m. and you closed up and you you know, tabulated it all and swept the floor. Yep. But as things progressed, we wanted to build a business. And that was a, a, a key difference to the first attempt. So teaching took on a different role, if you mm. know what I mean? Mm. At, at any point in all of this, especially in the beginnings of a business, uh, having all the experience that you've had now, I think we're speaking mostly to those of our listeners who are potentially a little bit older, a little bit more advanced in their careers and their lives. Did at any point, waking up at five, unlocking that door, having to close at eight or nine, having just swept the floor, were you thinking, what the heck am I doing here? Do these people know who I am? Did that creep in at all ever? No. I never felt more alive. Mm. Um, it's good to run a business. It's good, good to build a personal balance sheet and have some security for your family. But if who you are is a painter, it's when you paint that you're most at ease. Mm. So it didn't bother me if anyone else knew of me in it. But I loved the fact that people understood Lifeco. It was called Life College then. Mm. That people knew that brand. That they were speaking about it in a manner that was part of their lives. That was oh, that was damn exciting. So let me let the the listener in <laughs> to to our to our story. And I say our story because uh, at one point I, I don't actually know how the association began or I'd heard of but I, so I'd applied to LifeCo for some development and the, the opportunities that you allow to and, and you invite people to enter into it's specifically around social enterprises and 
stop me at any point here if, if I go <laughs> off track. But I seem to, I enjoyed the process and it was fantastic. And I was able to move through all the way to a final round. And I thoroughly enjoyed working with everyone, especially the, the fellow students or individuals that were going to be potentially part of a cohort that I potentially would have been a part of. If you're not hearing it yet, yes, I was not part of that cohort because I stumbled at the, the final post. Mm-hmm. which is such a fascinating thing for me to experience. But then what is so interesting about what what your life has shown you and taught you and, and given you is the ability to empathize with someone like me who has failed. So your story and the fact that you came through, the team recommended you. So maybe to, maybe to give listeners a sense of, of what happens. We might have a thousand applications a year. And these are people who want to step into the LifeCo Unlimited program which is the Global Unlimited Program that we since did that merger, right? Mm. And what we do is we find, fund, and support early stage, social, environmental, or impact entrepreneurs. And Gareth, you impressed us, you impressed the team, and you come all the way through to the investment committee. And, I mean, I, I was sitting on this committee, and I hold back a little bit because we have a sense of you. I need the others. And we had some banks on the panel and this, that, and the other. And of course, I thought, Gareth, what happened? Mm. And it's almost as if you had your your version of the moment I had when my mic first came on Perhaps, in my yeah. early stage of, of, of broadcasting. Yeah. But you, you have been so passionate about it. You've brought this through. The team's impressed by what's moved you then, mm. right? And just in the presentation, things fall apart. Mm. And man, my heart went out to you. But I can't. I'm sitting on this panel. Sure. You know, we're an objective panel. And anyway, you leave and we then have this conversation and we have one person on the panel who's a serial entrepreneur and listed one of his, his entities is also on our board. And he says, his question was, how did he even make it to the panel? Mm. Because w- what happened? Mm. And my heart went out and I found myself saying, because we're allowed to when the doors closed and you guys have left now. I said, he's here because the team believes in him. He's here because we think he can cut this. And there was a debate in the end. He said, no. Mm. So I hope you come back one day. Please do. <laughs> so something happened. You just, you didn't have your millipop that morning. Yeah, I know. It, it, it seems so. <laughs> but what I so appreciate about your experiences in relation to the experiences of those who are going to be part of these kinds of processes is your ability to understand what people need at different stages. Mm. I'm, I think let, let's do that for a moment. Let's just go with your experience and let's talk to the listeners who are out there. And, and you tell us, tell me, tell the budding entrepreneur who is building their business, whether it be social or otherwise, what is it that you look for and what is it that the team looks for in an entrepreneur that is potentially going to come into your environment and and have the substantial support and opportunities that you would provide? What is it that you look for? So there are different stages that we look for different things. I won't be as long-winded as I'm suggesting. Mm. But in the early stage, when people just apply to us, there's a quick way in the algorithm that things are worked out in the in the application online that sort of separates. So mm. we might have a 1,000. Generally, 50 55% are chances of people who will will apply and throw themselves at anything um, and they quickly get separated. Then that 40-45% 
are people who genuinely are wanting to be in business. And then there's another cut down because not all of them are interested in an impact enterprise. Yeah, social impact. Yeah. They really just want a good private business. And if we see that, we will pass some of them on to, we've got 60 institu- institutional partners and we might just pass some good ones on and say, not for us, have a look, mm. right? Because you can grow an entrepreneur in our country, grow them. Mm. And then we left with about 20, 25% of those who definitely are moved. And yeah, I'm getting to your answer. They're moved by a social or environmental mission. And there's another cut down because many are moved of that last 20 odd percent are moved by a social and environmental mission. But roughly, this is yeah, just the reality of where we are in our country with inequality. But 60 or so percent of them want classic NGOs. Mm. They moved and they're wanting grants because they're taking care of a vulnerable ecosystem, vulnerable individuals and so on. Mm. We can't back them because we need both. Mm. We then refer those to a few others, right? We need someone who will drive impact as well as be obsessed with growing a top line and showing either profit or a surplus, however you choose to register what you have. And you see how it's sort of cut back. Mm. And then that last round, and that's when you were in, was about having consultations, their boot camps and gatherings and so on to get these entrepreneurs together and they help refine each other mm. you know you sort of listen out and question and and at that stage it's not about i'm going we're all rushing to win one prize no there's potentially 30 prizes if they're 30 entrepreneurs then the last part of that is when you actually get through to the panel but by now people have done due diligences and they're having a look at oh, you know have you been honest Do you actually have it registered all that stuff happens yeah, yeah. All the boxes are ticked and finally the human being steps in front of this panel and they're going to assess two things. The person in relation to the mission they articulate, the person in relation to their ability to grow the enterprise. Mm. And that's the bit that you experience, right? Mm. So that, in, in a nutshell, sort of the way the funnel pulls back. And we may only fund support um, out of a thousand. I wish it was more might only be 20 in a year. Are, are there any uh, standout characteristics or traits or abilities that you are on, on an ongoing basis seeing from those who are getting through? Yes and no. I'll give you the ones that pop into mind as you ask the question. There are people who are possessed by a passion for something. Mm. And generally, this indication it's been there for a long time. Mm. The ones who discovered it this weekend don't quite cut it, right? Sure. There's that. They're also individuals who, and this is using our phrase, they haven't, but they also want to trade for change. They're not wanting to beg. And please beg, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. They're very good organizations that must be grant funded. Yes. Don't tell me if someone's feeding um, the three-year-olds that they've got to turn that into a, you know, a massive enterprise with a 20% margin on it. Sometimes society must take care of its most vulnerable. Mm. But just to, to keep the analogy going, they, they, they're wanting to trade for change and not beg for the small coins, the small yep. change. Yep. That's another trait. And they have a clear idea of how they want to. They may change their minds when they're working with a PwC or whoever else supports these entrepreneurs, mm. but they want to trade for change. Mm. The third one is they generally have a sense of 
the competition. They've done a little bit of work. They don't think they're the only ones that have thought of this. They do some careful work. And it's very seldom you've got a brand new idea these days. There are a few geniuses around, but none of them have applied to us yet. I do want to just go back to you a little bit in your in your growth and your development. And here's a here's an interesting question for you, uh, which is, as you look at LifeCo now, and where it is and where you want it to be, are you the right entrepreneur to take it there? Because there's different types of entrepreneurs in the world. Some are really good at starting. Others mm-hmm. are really good at scaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you when you look at yourself, what do you feel like you're the right person? Every three years I resign at LifeCo. And I do because every three years the strategy has taken a number of steps forward. And on that hill, Mm. there's another horizon that we didn't anticipate. So there are some smart entrepreneurs who have a vision very young and then they go and execute it. I'm not that guy. Because what I first thought was going to be a few classes with young entrepreneurs has ended up in an organization that has an investment portfolio, that has an asset base of 120 million and wants to grow to 500 million. I'm an English teacher. Mm. I can identify a verb for you. <laughs> I mean, what, what the hell do I know about building the balance sheet, you know? Mm. So we've gone now and, and, and hired investment bankers, actuaries, economists, um, and those kinds of people in our commercial division. On my board, I have people who know these things really well. Mm. Ian, who you met, has mm. listed. He understands this. And all I do is I become more of a conductor, uh, Gareth. Mm. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, a conductor implies, you know, standing there waving a baton around. But sure, I've got a hell of a job to do. But if you're really smart, and if I've learned anything from my 20s, sometimes shut up and listen gets you further. Mm. Sometimes knowing that the vision is far bigger and requires sets of skills and people that you can never be. And every three years I resign and give the board a chance to put me back in the classroom and put someone else in place to grow it. So we're, we're a hybrid organization. We mm. still do the educating. There's 127,000 people now nationally on the one side. And on the other side, there's the investment portfolio. And more and more, I'm realizing that it is, as a hybrid organization, a team that's motivated by the same mission, mm-hmm. but very different skills. Sometimes they use language. I've got to stop and say, huh? Say that again. Say it in English. Well, the thing is <laughs> that uh, Richard Branson uh, is, um, of course, the famous Richard Branson. He's shared this a number of times. He doesn't understand uh, net from net from gross. And the, someone had to draw, literally draw a picture for him. And, and that, that's an appropriate thing. And I, I think that every organization needs the, the skills, but they do need a conductor as well. So so I, I think I'm getting a sense of where you want to be going with your, your own career as part of LifeGo. Let, let's analyze you continue to analyze you for a moment what are your three pillars of ceo leadership i don't have a set formula but i'll give it a stab right the one thing i learned was that leadership is really about clearing the clearing the path for others it's something stephen covey said and i loved it and then also the kind of leadership style i employ now it's 50 percent empowering roughly 30 percent consultative Mm. and 20% directive Mm. but at the beginning of this journey it was the other way around that's something that's important to me is having the right ratio in terms of 
leading competent smart people and the other thing is to have three horizons so horizon one was developed a few years ago and is being executed now by mm. the team horizon two we both involved with but my job is really horizon three okay is where are we going to develop the next wave of impact and how do we grow to a billion rand mm. in assets? And the difference is I don't own a cent. You can't own a cent. All my students own that asset. Mm. And how do we grow to a point where that asset eventually sustains this impact for as long as South Africa needs it? That's one heck of a great challenge. What I appreciate from what you're sharing is that there are different skill sets for different horizons, but also not just different skill sets. What it sounds like is you've set it up in such a way that you can work on what you need to while the rest works behind you. And I don't know how many entrepreneurs, certainly I, I wouldn't have thought of it way back when, when I first started tinkering with entrepreneurship, they, they don't necessarily build against multiple horizons. They often don't build to exit. They often don't build to, to grow in a particular direction. And, and too much of the business depends on them. What I appreciate about what you're sharing is that you're allowing that to, to fade away to a certain extent. But to what you've shared with Carmen was that you, you did it deliberately. You said, if something happens to us, this has to, sta- this has to stand. One or two more questions. We're, we're running short on time. Luby, who isn't here with us, would have asked you already long time ago, what book are you reading at the moment? <laughs> There's a co- not one book. I'm into Brené Brown. And I've been reading different articles that she's been putting out over time. And mm. she talks about vulnerability. Mm. Um, the place you went to naturally now. And I've been reading a range of articles and gets, getting into her. It was Carmen who first discovered her. It was, just a, was it a TED Talk or something? I thought, wow, that's amazing. So I've been following her and I'm getting to a point where I'm going to get one of her books. Mm. But in this digital age, I mean, I've got a lot of her thinking already. In fact, there's a a leadership getaway with my executive team and we're all going to encounter Brené Brown mm. and her work on vulnerability and leadership and real strength. Why, why does vulnerability speak to you? And I think you just answered the question there. Mm. It's that idea of real strength. Why is that appealing to you at this point? I think it's, it's, it's completely appealing to my entire team right now because we've turned 20. The next horizon is challenging. We cannot be caught up in ego and self-righteousness and all that crap, it mm. wastes time. Mm. My salary bill every month is what we spent in three years in the, in the first, uh, when we first started the second version of this. Mm. Uh, you, you just can't waste time. And I think if people can't be vulnerable and real and authentic with themselves, you hurt the mission, you mm. hurt the business. I have no need for you then. So it's a very good point. We have run out of time here. There's one Thank last you. question which, we'll, which we always ask, and so we have to ask. And that is, if you could go back in time and speak to the young future CEO, the 20-year-old, what's that one thing that you would say to yourself? Shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. Pat Pillay, CEO, founder of LifeCo Unlimited. Thank you so very much for your time. And thank you for sharing your insights and your stories and, and, and being vulnerable here in studio. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your strength. Thank you, Gareth. Lovely having this time with you. We will be back same time, same place next week here on Future CEOs. See you then. 
This is CliffCentral.com.